part of the show, the part where we answer listener questions. I am consistently impressed with the quality of the questions we get from our listeners. Many times we have to do a little research before we can answer them, which we don't have the ability to do here tonight, but we'll do our best to answer your questions. Um, and let me just say for our listeners, if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. All right, with that, we would love to take your questions. And so please come up to the microphones if you have a question. I know there were people at the Omni Hotel who were in line, didn't get a chance to get their question asked. So we would love to do our best to answer them here tonight. But again, our rule is you gotta tell us your name, your favorite local barbecue, and then please ask your question. Hi, uh, name is John, and I've got two part questions, so I've got two barbecue places. Excellent. <laughs> Our favorite kind. It's a little bit of a drive, but Valentina's Tex-Mex Barbecue, south of town, has to die for breakfast taco barbecue. Ooh. So oh, let's get up early and go no. do that. And then is it on the way to the airport? It is not. That's okay. It is not convenient, but it, you pass 100 breakfast taco places on the way, and it's mm -hmm. totally worth it. Uh, lunchtime, Leroy and Lewis, uh, which is closer by. Also, I think number five in Texas Monthly's top barbecue places. So... That's that. Uh, Two-part question. Thank you. Um, with the 11th Circuit uh, booting the case on the on the confidential docs, do you think the DOJ is going to go back after the rest of the case based on the ruling? Uh, so that's the first question. The second question is, uh, do you think the DOJ uh, is going to run a case with all of the materials, or it seems like with the confidential docs, it seems like they've got a slam dunk case. It seems like that would be an easier one to, to really paint a clear picture. I'm curious how you think that case evolves. Thanks. Joyce, why don't you take part one and then any of us can yeah. take part two. So I think this is an interesting question. And my answer is I've thought about this a lot and I'm really not sure what they'll do. It seems to me that it's very likely that the issues on appeal will get mooted because Judge Deary has set this very fast schedule for resolving everything. You'll recall that this motion that was just granted involved only the classified materials, but there's everything else. And you know, I think Barb has discussed this a lot on the show. The reason that in a search you can take not only documents that are evidence, but documents that are co-located with them or items that are co-located is it can help to establish that the person whose hotel they were located at got into those drawers and knew that they were there, right? It helps you establish constructive possession. Um, so I think it's entirely likely that the appeal just gets mooted out. If it doesn't, right, if there's some holdup, let's say Judge Cannon intervenes, I think then DOJ will go forward um, with the appeal. And as you say, the issues are not as clear cut once you get outside um, of classified material. So that, I'm, I'm not hedging my bets, I'm just a little bit nervous about what could happen if there is a full on appeal here. So let me add to that, because I agree with the first part of what you said, but the Presidential Records Act was passed because of Richard Nixon, so I've been, aware of it for a long time. I'm sorry, time. Jill, did you, did you have anything to do with Watergate? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I was only a child at the time, but I still remember it. 
And I remember what happened when he tried to say he owned these documents. And the government passed a law that said, no, you don't. They belong to the people. They belong to history. They're there for the archives to maintain so that historians and journalists can evaluate the things you did in office. And so it's, to me, equally important that the not classified documents also are not rightfully held. They can be transferred to a presidential library. They can be used by a lot of people, but they have to be publicly available. So his taking cartons and cartons and cartons of them for no apparent reason to Mar-a-Lago, and the classified, of course, we know raise a security issue that's way beyond just whether it's a violation of the law or not. But I just want to say I think that it's important that even those that weren't classified should be prosecuted. And John, just on your charging decision question, I think one way to think about it is some of the documents are contraband, you know, the ones that are classified in government records, and some of them are evidence, like the personal records, his passport, like it is very meaningful yes. that his passport was found in the same drawer as some of these documents because it suggests that Trump himself was accessing those documents. So they'll give it back eventually, they'll make a copy of it so that they can testify that they were found there. But prosecutors do have to think about this case and you know, as you point out, they, they may be able to win a case just with these 100 documents. And the risk of including too many documents is the case can become needlessly complicated. I know when, the, when I first went to new prosecutor school, there's a wonderful training facility that DOJ sends all its lawyers to, and we had a training on trying federal cases. And one of the things I remember being told is, the federal government, the US attorney's offices, rarely lose cases because the jury didn't believe them. When the government loses cases in the federal system, it's because the jury didn't understand the case because it got so complicated and the government has the burden of proof that they just said, I, you know, I just, I just don't see the guilt here because I just, you know, I can't, I can't put the elements together. So the more of these, you know, 11,000 documents and these are illegal for this reason and these are illegal for that reason could cloud the case. But in the search warrant affidavit, they've listed three categories of potential crimes where the judge found probable cause. One was um, possession of government records. So those would be the ones that Jill's talking about, presidential records that belong to the United States. Um, the second category is these classified documents, willfully retaining national defense documents. So the fact that they're classified is not really an element of the offense. You know, it matters when they're stored improperly and the government wants them back to make sure they are protected. But in terms of proving that case, so when Donald Trump says, I declassified those and I can declassify them just by thinking about it, that's really, uh, a distraction. It is a shiny object to get us talking about classification and declassification because it's not an element of the Espionage Act. It's just a crime to willfully retain documents, the content of which pertains to the national defense. And then the third one is obstruction of justice. And the statute cited there is 18 U.S.C. 1519, which it per pertains in particular to documents. And I think tell me if you disagree, that probably goes back to the subpoena that gets served in June, and they say, there you go, that's it. And they hand off uh, you know, one envelope of documents, and it turns out they've got you know, 27 more boxes in the basement. Like, thank God they didn't find the 27 boxes. <laughs> um, so that's probably what that relates to. So it may be that they um, use some, all, most of these documents, but um, I do think you have to be careful not to bite off more than a jury can chew. All right, who's our next questioner? Uh, name, favorite barbecue, question, please. Uh, my name's Leroy, and uh, although I've been kind of an involuntary 
vegan for a few <laughs> years. Uh, I'll throw in my lot with Franklin's. I think it's Is Franklin's, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Franklin's. Um, so I I've read a lot of contracts, but not a lot of legal briefs, like the stuff that's been, been put into the docket for this Mar-a-Lago thing. Mm -hmm. But I've been, it's like porn for me. <laughs> me too, I'm gonna confess. I, so I've read all of these briefs that have gone in both in, in, in uh, Cannon's Court and Deary and everything. And it struck me, especially from the point of view of the government and most of the jurists except Cannon, that not a lot of Latin. It seems to be extremely clear. And I get the distinct impression that the people authoring these things are really trying to signal something to the people about the way justice is supposed to work. And I wonder, is it always like that? Or is this kind of really a special case where they're really trying to communicate? I think that's a great question. I, I thought the same thing, particularly looking at this 11th Circuit uh, decision on with the stay because one thing I thought was really interesting is that it explained probably better than any place I've ever seen how classification works and doesn't work you know it didn't come out and say you cannot you know declassify something with your mind <laughs> but it laid out very clearly and it was done for the public. It seemed very clear to me that it was being done for the public, that there is a process by which you do this. And it is very careful. And it is very clear from the facts in the current case that that process did not, uh, was not undertaken. And it was in part to, you know, cut down the argument from Cannon that seemed to say, well, I don't know if these are classified or not. I can't take the government's word for it. Like, how can you do that? And especially saying, no, it, these clearly these, these seem to be classified. There's no evidence that they were not, that they were declassified, they were marked. That seems in enough, uh, in itself, enough to do that. But I think you're right. I think in a lot, with this case, um, as well as with other things, with the January 6th com uh, commission, for example, I think the people who are in charge of this realize that the public is watching, that this has to do with really important questions, and we are talking about a former president, and so that they want to be careful and they want to be clear. So I think in these cases, it is much clearer than legal uh, briefs, decisions, orders have been in most cases. And well, the same is true for, I think, Judge Deary, the special master. I mean, he's talking plain language and saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. And put up or shut up. I mean, yeah. he's basically said that. He said, if you want to claim that these were declassified, then identify which ones are declassified and how he did it, tell me exactly what you're talking about, which is putting the lawyers in a bad position. They cannot do that because it isn't true and because they know that they could be disbarred or tried for crimes for doing it. So I think it's really important that they are talking not just to the litigants, but to the American people. You know, I'll speak for the 11th Circuit and say that we've now got our third chief judge from Alabama in a row and all three of them have been people who are really committed to writing in plain English. The, the um, chief judge prior to, to the judge that we have now actually would go all around the state and go to conferences and advocate for people to express themselves as well in legal writing as people often do in songs. You know, he would say it needs to be plain English that people can understand and he would advocate against the use of 50 cent words when a nickel word would do just as well. 
Our no conflagration? <laughs> no conflagration, baby. Um, our current chief judge does something that's really, and he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. Um, and you can, you know, sometimes you get these opinions that are per curiam that aren't signed by any one judge, but you can always tell when Judge Pryor, Judge Bill Pryor has, we have two Judge Pryors in the circuit right now. When Judge Bill Pryor has written an opinion, the first paragraph tells you what the issue is and what the outcome of the case is. And I love reading his um, opinion. Sometimes you have to read an opinion for a while before you find out what the court is saying. I think his model is a good one. I think what you're seeing in the 11th Circuit's opinion is something that you would see in opinions from the circuit, you know, if you read them no matter what. If it was a tax case or an ERISA case, I, my, you know, my eyes glaze over. I have a hard time following those. But there is a commitment to writing so that American citizens without a legal education can understand the outcomes, and, and we need more of that. Welcome to the NCJL group. Thank you. Good to see you here. Next question up. Sorry, I'm not a tall person. Um, hi. hi, I am like many women who are very upset about what the Supreme Court has recently done. I'm, I kind of blame the Senate, um, what has happened to our federal courts, and I'm wondering what, uh, what the appetite is of the legal community and what your individual um, opinions are on reforming the courts, setting term limits, maybe adding additional justices to the Supreme Court. Where do you think this is gonna go? Well, those are two different questions. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Um, there was an entire commission that was uh, uh, brought together by the president, um, mostly because he was taking questions on this from the campaign trail, and he didn't want to touch it. So he said, oh, well, I'll get a commission together, and they'll make recommendations. And their final recommendation is, well, you know, do whatever the court wants to do. Um, and so I don't think much is going to happen. Personally, I have shifted on this. I have been, I used to be wary of changing institutions entirely just because you don't like the outcome of something. But I do think now it's, it's more than clear that something is amiss here. And I think that term limits is something that scholars, legal scholars, um, conservative, liberal, all across the ideological spectrum have said it's probably a good idea. And I trust that, uh, I trust that consensus. And I think that that probably would be a good idea phased in. Um, I also think the reason we have nine justices now is because we used to have nine circuits. That's literally the only reason. Right now we have 13. So I think it would be a reasonable reform to match that uh, to the court. I don't know that that will happen. I doubt, oh, I, know, I don't think any of this will happen, but I think both of those things would be reasonable. Um, it, did we get a barbecue recommendation from you? <laughs> I'm biased. I got married at the Salt Lake, so, oh, so all right. not at the airport, but the one out in Driftwood. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like a fine choice. It's worth the drive, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, one thought I have is, you know, the Chief Justice Roberts is sort of bemoaning the fact that people um, are complaining that the court has lost its legitimacy. Well, look in the mirror, Mr. Chief Justice. You know, I think they have cost themselves their legitimacy. And the Dobbs opinion is... Um, such a blatant overreach. You know, the, the, the decisions of the court should not change simply because the justices change over time. And, you know, I can think of an occasion um, in the late 90s when the Miranda question came up. And, you know, when that was first enunciated, it was controversial because people said, 
the Miranda warnings, you know, you have the right to remain silent, et cetera, is not in the Constitution. And so the, the Warren Court, which was a very progressive court in the 1960s, just made it up. We should get rid of that. We should overrule it. And there was a case that came along called Dickerson. And the court looked at it, and the thought was like, oh, man, it's, it's going to go. They're going to overturn it. Chief Justice William Rehnquist, he's, he's gunning for it. Here it goes. And when the case actually came to them, what he said was, you know, looking at the, the rules for stare decisis, um, the rules are, uh, has our understanding of the facts and law changed? No. Have people acted in reliance on this? Yeah. Um, has it been unworkable in practice? No, it actually works pretty well. Has the rest of the law evolved in such a way that we ought to you know, rethink this and change it? No. And so what he said was, even though if we were writing on a clean slate, I would get rid of this, when we apply the standards for when a case ought to be overturned, they are not met here. And so we will reaffirm the Miranda warnings in this Dickerson case. That's the way it's supposed to be done. And what we're seeing in Dobbs is if you think about all those same questions, have people relied on this in their own lives? Yes, they have. Has our understanding of the facts or the law changed? No. Has it been unworkable in practice? No. Has the law arisen around it in such a way that it's no longer you know, makes sense? No. And so when you look at all those factors, they all cut in favor of reaffirming the decision of Roe versus Wade. And instead, we saw the court simply say it was egregiously wrong period, without going through this analysis. Um, that, to me, is what has caused the Supreme Court's legitimacy crisis. I don't know how they change it from here other than uh, getting back to following those standards and respecting, sorry, or how did you phrase it, Kim? Um, we, we already told you. We already told you. <laughs> All right, thank you. Who's got another question and barbecue recommendation for us? Yes. My name is Darlene. Um, probably the pit. I'm it, sorry. Oh, the pit. You are telling us your, your, yeah, your barbecue. Yeah, it's a neighborhood mom and pop. It's been there for years, decades. Love uh, it. Love it. The pit. Okay. my neighborhood can walk to it. So. Oh, love it. All right. Uh, I also am upset with the Supreme Court and really feel like they should all be, I you know, charge with something, I mean, you, you, you hear them in their This is a family show, I'll warn you. But they go before confirmation, right? And they, they, they share their thoughts with the people, and you have some assumption of belief, right? And so in my mind, the last three have totally destroyed that. I don't think I'll ever believe uh, a nomination hearing again just because they can say something and it doesn't really matter because when they get there, they're going to do whatever they want. And so the, the, the other question I have is, a, is wanting to understand the shadow docket a little bit better because it seems like more and more cases are being uh, decided outside of any kind of understanding. And it's kind of, we don't need to tell you because we know better, right? Kind of. And so that is really hard. I really think that the court publicly is going to lose its standing with the public because of the things that they do in that way. So the court really hates the use of this name, the shadow docket, because it sounds 
like something deceptive, where the court is making decisions in the dark, where people can't see their reasoning. Well, just a, a, Alito and Kavanaugh hate it. Kagan uses it. Well, that's fair. That's absolutely right. Um, and Kagan uses it in a very pointed way that makes it clear that the criticism is fair. There has always been a procedural docket that the court has. You have to have some way to deal with these cases that come up that needs a ruling on something like a request for a stay or an injunction before you hear the full case on the merits. Something that often comes up on, on what we now call the shadow docket, but what used to be the procedural docket, would be requests for stays ahead of, of executions in states that still use the death penalty. Um, but some law professors began to notice that the court was increasingly resolving substantive issues on the shadow docket. And here's the impact of that. I think it's, you know, the, the problem and, and the issue that arises here is that you have a substantive ruling being made. And let's take SB8, the Texas abortion case that started us down this, this path. The Supreme Court gets that on an early procedural motion. And they rule, and we get a very short ruling. We actually get something from them explaining how they're ruling. Often on the shadow docket, you get nothing. And then the lower courts are left having to try to follow the Supreme Court's ruling with nothing in writing to tell them what it is. And it goes back on, on appeal, and the Supreme Court says, oh no, you didn't follow our rule that we laid down in this decision that we didn't write about. But we had a little bit more in SB8. It was mostly sort of this pearl clutching. Oh my God, Texas has done something so novel. Whatever will we do? There's no way that we can enjoin this because you know this notion of vigilante enforcement is just so out of bounds. So we got that, but it felt so deceptive and disingenuous. And if you're concerned about the integrity of the court handling cases without argument and full briefing on issues that really impact people's rights is a mistake. And so this goes back again to what this chief justice wants his legacy to be, how he wants to run the court that he's a part of. No, he doesn't control that in its entirety. And, and yes, the shadow docket will continue to be used, I think, for some of these very difficult issues because of this um, supermajority that the conservatives now have. But it doesn't have to be that way. The court could find ways to write more fully to these issues, to give guidance to both regular citizens and the lower federal courts. It's a decision that this court has made. And let me just give a pitch. If you want to learn more about the shadow docket, there is a law professor right here at the University of Texas by the name of Steve Vladek. And he has a book coming out on the shadow docket. Um, it's, it's coming out, I think, in the spring. Uh, but uh, describing what it is and why it's uh, so so dangerous. And on the issue of confirmations, um, I, I agree with you that Supreme Court confirmations have been really useless for a very long time, I would say, really since the Bork uh, nomination. What it has taught nominees to do is to go and say just enough without saying what they're going to do. So when they're asked about anything, uh, any precedent, they will say that that issue was decided by the Supreme Court, which is not a lie, right? They don't say, but I won't rule against it. They will say, oh, I can't speak on how a, a case that may come up. They, they say just enough to not be in trouble so that they can get confirmed. But the, politiz the politicization and um, just the, the 
more, more than politicization, just the partisan just battle over the judiciary that has been created and exacerbated by Mitch McConnell has really broken that process so irreparably that I, I, I don't think that it's been effective for a while, unfortunately. And I think the reason it's being called the shadow docket is because it has become that. It was, as Joyce said, procedural. It's always existed. But now they've gone behind our, our backs, and they're doing things that are substantive yeah. without having the arguments, without having public disclosure, without having opinions. And I think we should call it that. We yeah. shouldn't try to cover up that it is a shadow docket. I mean, the redistricting map. Yeah. I didn't even know that happened until I think you texted about it. Right. I was like, what happened in Alabama? And you know, you, I didn't even know that was going to happen, and all of a sudden, Alabama has a gerrymandered district for the 2022 elections, and nothing can be done about that. And I mean, it was literally that, right? You could see it coming if you were following the case, but the court sort of just plucks this horrible situation in Alabama and says, final word, we won't fix the maps before this election. On the shadow docket, no full briefing, no argument in open court where people have the opportunity to engage. And it's, I think, this notion that they're going behind our backs. Whether they're, in fact, doing that or not, whether in some cases this procedural docket is the right, the right way to resolve issues, the appearance further undercuts their credibility at a point in time when their credibility is at an all-time low. And I think the biggest problem is they don't see that, right? The Chief Justice seems to be tone deaf, talking about how hard it is for them to drive through security when they get to the court. It breaks my heart to see how walled off the court is from the public now. For years, we've been able to gather on those big open front steps to protest. No more. Once he vote, once he voted, he didn't say anything. He voted against the, in, with the minority on a shadow. But then he went right back to voting with yeah, the majority. Yeah, one time. Yeah. That was his protest. Do I have to go over there? Okay. Yes, sir. Your Hi. name and your favorite barbecue place, please. Hi. I'm Carlos Delgado. I'm not from Austin, though, so I couldn't tell you much about Where are you this. from, Carlos? Uh, near Dallas, Texas. Do y'all have Dallas tomorrow night there? in your barbecue place there? Yeah, I was, I was worried you guys were going to say that. Yeah. We're super huge barbecue fans. So You've heard talk. Yeah. All right. Um, I don't know. Are we going to let him get away? Right, what's your favorite restaurant in Dallas? To, to be honest, since the COVID, you know, I'm nah, really right. yeah. It's okay. We let you off the hook. What's your question? Um, so, a little bit different. I, I was curious, do you have any commentary or interesting aspects going from attorneys to celebrity television political <laughs> legal analysts? You know, it just seems kind of kind of go from one to the other. It might seem kind of weird. Or, I, don't, I don't know. Well, it is awfully glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Jill. You're the, you've been living in the limelight. Uh, um, no, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, part of me misses trial law, but I had retired when I turned 65, and so it's a long time, and, and I had actually switched to a corporate career, so it's even longer ago, and this was my dream to be in media, and so for me it's fantastic, and I think I love, one of the things I love about it is one is that I get to work with these fantastic people, and I mean, every week I look forward to our conversations, and we laugh a lot doing the ads, but we really learn a lot from each other. And I love that I'm meeting people all over, um, some people who, I, I, like 
that I admire, that I've seen on television will come up to me and, oh my God, you know me, this is so amazing, I can't believe it. <laughs> but just people on the street, um, or I'll be in the grocery store in, you know, just having been swimming and I'm filthy and, and someone will recognize me, I go, oh, I'm so sorry you recognize me. You shouldn't recognize me, I should look better. But I, I, I actually, I have to say, I, I enjoy it. It's really fun and I get to talk to interesting people. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is fun, like doing this in front of an audience, because we don't get to do that very often. I never get to do that. I don't think, of, I mean, I certainly don't think of myself as a no. celebrity, and I don't think about that much at all. Neither I mean, does I've been, Beyonce, I I've been, <laughs> I, But I, I've been a journalist now for 20 years, more than 20 years now, um, 21 years. And even with the television stuff. I'm usually in a studio in front of a camera with yeah. a couple other people. When we do the podcast, I'm sitting in my basement by myself. I'm thinking about the work. I'm thinking about how important it is. And obviously I know that that's an audience, but I'm always thinking about the work. And that's what drives me and that's what gives me the satisfaction in addition to working with wonderful people. And so, yeah, sometimes I'm recognized when I'm out and about and it's sort of like, oh, right, yeah, right, yeah, I do have a job where you may, no, you may recognize my face, but I don't think about it that much. You know, my yeah. favorite thing about this, um, and I, I'm not sure maybe this doesn't answer the question, but maybe it does in a slightly different way. So, you know, I worked at DOJ for 25 years and indicted cases and, and worked on different things. And to be honest, I can only remember a handful of cases during that period of time where there was much in the way of community interest. Yeah. And something that I really love about doing this is that people will stop me in the grocery store or when I'm at home in Birmingham picking up barbecue, um, and they will ask wonderful questions, you know, like, how does this indictment work? How does the grand jury work? And what I r really love and what I think is the silver lining of the Trump era, and maybe this is what helps us move forward as a country, is I think people are re-engaged with this notion of having a justice system and how our democratic institutions work. That's what's going to get us through this. I'm awfully, you know, happy when that happens and honored to get to be a part of it. So for me, it's a great gig. Well, I love being a prosecutor. I suppose if I'd had my druthers, I would have been able to stay. In fact, the day after the election when Donald Trump was elected, and I knew that was curtains for me, that uh, as U.S. attorney in the Obama administration, it meant it was going to be time for me to leave. I actually called DOJ and asked if I could have my old job back as an assistant U.S. attorney, and they told me I could not. So uh, the time came to look for a new job, and I was so thrilled to land at the University of Michigan Law School, my alma mater, and teaching is the greatest most satisfying job you can ever imagine. And it inspires me every day to be among these young people who really want to change the world and make the world a better place. So I love teaching. I learn more than I, than I teach them, but I love teaching. And I see the work that we do uh, as public education. You know, I often say I don't explain, I mean, I, I don't opine, I try to explain. And so, so people can make their own decisions and form their own opinions, but they need to understand. And sometimes there's a lot of legal jargon in the news, or people are deliberately deceptive and misleading. And so explaining to people, you know, Rudy Giuliani would talk about, my office was raided, the FBI came and you know, kicked in my door. Well, no, they had a court-authorized search warrant based on a finding by a judge that there was probable cause to believe that a crime had been committed and that evidence of that crime would be found in your office that's why the FBI came to your door. So 
I think just trying to explain that to people so that they can understand and kind of get through the rhetoric is, is what I enjoy about doing it. And so, uh, you know, like, like Joyce, I think um, democracy depends on an informed electorate. And if, I, and if I can just add a little bit of information into the uh, atmosphere, then it, it feels very gratifying. Yes. Okay. First of all, speaking of celebrity, when you were at uh, TripFest a few years ago, when she walked in the room about a minute behind this amazing panel, she got a standing ovation. Remember? How can you forget? I do remember. So, um, yeah, you are celebrities and you mean a lot to everyone. And as far as barbecue, I told you earlier, Terry Black's on Barton Springs or Cooper's is downtown. My daughter loves Cooper's. I had lunch there. Okay, and Terry Black, though, has the greatest vegetables in the world, too. Um, and my question isn't about this, but speaking of gerrymandering in Austin, we're very blue, right? Blueberries and a bowl of strawberries. We have one Democrat representative because they have chopped up Austin so much. My representative, Michael McCall, goes all the way, 150 miles away, into Houston, into Katy, Texas and he doesn't do town halls. He is gonna be here tomorrow. I might go see him just so I can see him, you know, but no representation in Austin at all. Um, my question is concerning the Supreme Court ruling around the time of the Roe versus Wade thing on the guns, because I guess my passions are women's right to choose and guns. I don't understand a few things, a lot of things, but why could they rule that New York could not have their gun laws, yet Texas can have their gun laws? And why, when I go to Ted Cruz's office at the federal building in Austin, can I not take a gun in? That is such a great question, right? Do as I say, not as I do. Um, in Alabama, when they passed open carry, I was still the U.S. attorney, and I had I won't identify anybody by name, but I'll just say I had certain athletic facilities um, where folks called and said, how are we going to keep guns out of our facilities? We can't have people coming in with guns. And there were, quite frankly, ways involving signage and restrictions that let them get away. It has also been a live issue for us with churches, right? Some churches want everybody to come in armed, and other churches want to make sure nobody can come in with a gun. And so essentially what happens here is a very results-oriented sort of ruling where the Supreme Court has created an environment where it's very difficult to restrict ownership, possession, carry, but very easy to pass laws that permit those sorts of things. And that's the development in the law, and frankly, it's disingenuous and dangerous. You know, it's the same thing that's happening with Lindsey Graham's proposal yeah. for federal restrictions um, that say no one can have an abortion. They had the Dobbs decision say it's up to the states. Now they're saying no, ma, not really up to the states, it's up to us to say none. So it, it is the same thing that Joyce is saying, it's right. do what I... If you were looking for an explanation, there is not. I mean, it's, it's results driven, it does not, it is not consistent, it's completely inconsistent. And may I also add, you know, this case builds on a prior case from about 10 years ago called Heller um, that uh, where the Supreme Court textualists, mind you, who say we only read the text and we read it as it was defined at the time it was written. Well, right. And so we've got, yeah, so we've got the Second Amendment 
a well-regulated militia being necessary for the public good. It's uh, the, the first right part to, of it. The right to bear arms shall not be abridged. Right? Egregiously wrong from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you are a textualist, th- but the, what the court held there, written by Justice Scalia, who is you know the the king of the textualists. He wrote, no, it meant, it, it was a, um, it's a, it's a personal right. It has nothing to do with a militia. Each one of us has a personal right to bear arms, he said. And then how about the idea of what arms meant at the time the Second Amendment was passed, right, in the late 1700s? Maybe a musket with a one-shot ball, right? Not, not an AR-15. And yet we see it applied so inconsistently. Now, there is a little bit of language in Heller that gives me some comfort, which said, um, even though we are saying today that the right to bear arms is an individual right, and we're ignoring this militia clause, um, it does not mean that any person, whoever, may possess any gun whatsoever in any place wherever. So there still are some restrictions about, you know, felons may be prohibited, certain places like places of worship and sporting venues, uh, and certain kinds of guns like machine guns are still illegal under federal law. So the Bruin case said that the New York could not um, deny licenses for people who didn't make a special showing. There's still some little sliver of the ability of the government to prohibit guns. Uh, but I think we're going to see a lot more of uh, more lax laws around guns. In fact, somebody challenged a law in a state, was it Illinois, Jill, about a law that made it a crime for someone under 21 to possess an automatic weapon. And that law was challenged under this Bruin case that said, no, 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 that's, uh, that's an unconstitutional restriction on someone. Yeah, some, case, some state recently had a law that got struck down following that Bruin decision that you mentioned by the Supreme Court. We're over time, but we promise one more question if you make it really quick. I can't make it quickly. I don't like barbecue. No, I do. So, so look, just go to the airport. You'll be fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I am concerned, or I wonder if the judicial branch of our government is broken. I hear about the reforms. I hear about, you know, we've got some pockets. We have some dysfunction here, dysfunction here. We live in Texas. We've been relying on the federal government to save us, and they have been for decades, really. And now where are we, okay? I want to be optimistic. But is it going to take 30 years to get us out of this hole? Is it going to take 50 years? Am I going to be on my deathbed voting for Democrats? Literally. Because the last time I voted for a Democratic governor who actually made it was Ann Richards. The last time I voted for a Democratic president that actually made it was Jimmy Carter. Okay? And that was the first president I could ever vote for. I'd like to be optimistic, but let's be realistic. Because, Joyce, one time you said... Work within the scope of what you can do, okay? On one, you know, I heard that. And so that's what I've been trying to do. I live in Williamson County. I'm not going there with you, okay? Because it's, it's a really mixed up cluster, okay? But <laughs> where are we? Is this gonna take 30 years? So I will say I am a big fan, if you believe in democracy, of doing the work that's in front of you, that you can do, right? That's that's doable in your space, whatever that is. It might be working at a polling place or helping people register. Because there's not a whole lot that we do as citizens that impacts the judiciary other than voting, at least not the federal judiciary. The state judiciary is a different situation where we can have a lot more impact 
I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to help fix the judicial branch. We could probably spend an entire show talking about it. But I will say that although I have you know moods where I'm depressed about where it is, I don't think it's all that bleak because I think that there's a sort of a gravitational pull on the ju judiciary where when there is massive public expression of discontent, like what's going on with the Supreme Court right now, I do think that that helps the pendulum shift. And maybe what that means is that instead of getting you know, depressed and quiet and to stop talking about this, we need to keep our voices loud, we need to insist on courts that do their jobs and represent us, and we need to elect people who will appoint good judges and elect state judges who will be good judges. Amen.